Guys, this is Succession. This is HBO. If you don't want to hear me talking about Logan Roy, talking about then don't listen to this. There are bad language words in this show. Hello, and welcome to the Goons, Stooges, and Roughjacks episode of Slate Money Succession, your guide to the greatest show on HBO. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello, hello. And we have with us the guy who literally wrote the book on the rich, Michael Mechanic. Welcome. Thanks so much. Mike, introduce yourself and tell us about how you became a, a richologist. Is that is that a thing? I don't. <laughs> a richologist. Uh, well, I just was obsessed with people who come into wealth and how it affects their lives. So I'm a journalist. I, I'm a senior editor at Mother Jones Magazine for like a dozen years. Um, and I took a couple of years off to write a book called Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. So I kind of embedded with the very rich and their minions and the lawyers who act as their conciliaries and people who uh, train nannies in personal combat and luxury realtors and Bentley dealers and all these people. And I ran around and interviewed a million people. And I wrote up this uh, great book that tells us how our wealth fantasy has run amok. This is, of course, Succession is on one level a wealth fantasy. There has never been any shortage of wealth fantasy shows on TV. Succession is one of them, although it is not as much more than just a wealth fantasy show. But we're going to unpack a little bit of that this week. And of course, we're going to talk about Tom and Greg, and Shiv, and the whole crew, and Adrian Brody, Josh Aronson, the brand new character, all coming up on Slate Money Succession. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Emily, I have to say we are, we are now up to episode four. We're getting up to like basically the halfway point in this season. And I've decided that this is not a comedy anymore. Like if Succession was ever a comedy, it's not a comedy. Even at its darkest black comedy, this is actually full on just drama, really. Um, I mean, this episode, as as all episodes this season, we still had... Greg to amuse us, right? We still had Greg <laughs> chugging his rum and coke. Well, Greg is playing, like, literally playing the fool, right? In the Shakespearean sense, like, you can get, like, a a tragedy like King Lear, and then there are lots of Lear references, but um, there is also a fool, right? You need a fool even in the tragedy. Yes, yes. I This is a drama that is sh- for sure. It's turning a little tragic, but I still get a kick out of a lot of the a lot of the same players out of Greg and Roman still. If it's a drama, if it's a tragedy, at least for this episode, it's the Merchant of Venice, right, Mike? Yeah. I in fact all of that resounds with me. I I feel like it's very Shakespearean. And I was actually 
tell you the truth, I was thinking of Roman as the court jester because, you know, he's the one who wants to be close to the king. He's allowed to say kind of whatever comes to his mind. He's unfiltered. And yet he's just completely tethered to Logan. You know, he's inescapably tethered. He, he needs Logan's love so much, but he's allowed to say whatever he wants. He's that character. I, I, I disagree. I, I think it's still a comedy, even though it's a drama. I mean, there's so <laughs> there were just so many funny things. My big thing is that this is, this is like the anti-Semitism episode. It's foreshadowed very early on when the, at that point, off-screen Josh Aronson is mentioned as like this important 4% holder of Waystar Royco stock and Roman calls him a chiseling little fuck and Carl says he wants his pound of flesh and it starts so it's it's made pretty explicit pretty early on and this I have to say kind of came out of left field for me um you know where you, you have like Connor talking about how there were these rules about no Jews in the company. Look, sis, I don't like having my boot on the old man's throat, but I do. I got me some juice. Uh, oh, up to a point. Oh, no, 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 no. I can pull out the old megaphone anytime I want, and I can say, hey, guess what? I recall my father was a nasty, racist, neglectful individual. What was it that they used to say around here? No blacks, no Jews, no women above the fourth floor? This is an entertainment company? I mean, like, I, I was like, this is where I started thinking, like, okay, so we need to make, you know, the, the writers have decided to make the Roy family even more unlikable and evil than they were already, which... Oh, I'm good sure God, the tattoo man, the tattoo man. And the tattoo man. The, the depths of depravity. But, like, the anti-Semitism, I didn't see that one coming. I have to admit. And it seemed, maybe I'm naive, but like, I, I never, I, I didn't really consider that to be a thing that still exists in this kind of Felix, world. Felix, is this a bridge too far for you? Did you, I thought it was, it was, I, I, I love that they showed Josh Aronson's mezuzah, first of all, in his Hamptons beach house. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen a mezuzah on an HBO drama before and i liked the you're a bit far from your nearest coffee and bagel because oh I my god it was catch so the pound of the, flesh. and the gold reference you're counting your gold uh -huh. in your castle i guess i wasn't surprised i don't know i'm i'm, I'm a jewish person and i i'm looking for it everywhere you know what i mean <laughs> during the 80s and during the 80s you heard people say stuff like this all the time like out just like shamelessly always these comments on jews being cheap and things like that but i think you, you notice Logan on the walk also in threatening Kendall also made another racial slur, but Mexicans. Dad, you're the silverback, but I put you in the ground that day and you don't get to come back. You understand? You know something, son? I'd sooner get fucked by a spick in a shower block than see you have it. That was after the lunch where he made this whole show of maybe you're the one. Oh. Talk about manipulation. Well, Logan Logan is the one who can lie the most convincingly. I, I don't think he necessarily convinced Josh Aronson, but, you know, he was very smooth when he was on the phone with the president and saying, oh, you know, if only I had more time to keep my talent in line, but, you know, I'm too distracted by this justice investigation. 
And he was he was definitely like professional there. He was a credible liar and in his full on like business mogul negotiation mode in a way that when Kendall is bullshitting, everyone knows that he's bullshitting. It's just not nearly as credible. So we're talking specifically about um, when they're on their their walk that ends tragically with Logan just collapsing and throwing up that. Logan all of a sudden really lays it on thick to show that he and Kendall are okay. And he makes the whole speech like, he's a good kid. I love him. He's the best one of them. All of this. I feel like his character, in all these interviews that I've read with Brian Cox, he says, you know, I asked right away, asked Jesse Armstrong, um, does Logan actually love his kids? And Jesse Armstrong assured him, yes, Logan loves his kids. So I feel like he's not lying. He's just a complicated billionaire who both hates Kendall and would rather blah, 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 slur in the shower block and also loves Kendall and would definitely love to see him running the company. Like, I think he believes both of those things at the same time. Well, see, so one thing about sort of the billionaire class is everything for these guys becomes transactional. There was a big theme of that in this episode, like the friends, we, we really like you. Josh, Josh wanted to be liked, right? And Kendall even says, I really like you. And there was another scene where, you know, Tom was saying to, to Craig, I really like you or something like this. Everybody at this level is trying to get something out of somebody else. So even though Logan loves his children, He's just constantly manipulating them and they're manipulating each other to get what they want. My favorite version of that line is is Tom saying, I'd castrate you and marry you in a heartbeat. I love that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's get into Tom and Tom and Greg in this episode because Tom is like deep, deep in prison obsession right now with his toilet wine. Burping the bag. (laughs) And he has some kind of like... There's no cold white wine in prison, Emily. (laughs) There are no fine wines. Will he have time to read at night? I just keep thinking about, you know, you know when we get home uh, before dinner and we have the very first glass of cold white wine Mm -hmm. on an empty stomach, you know, that very cold glass of wine. I fucking love that. I just love that. And I... So I did a bit of research and I got deep into the prison blogs again. Oh, you know honey. about toilet wine, and it turns out you can make it from fruit and ketchup, but you have to you have to burp the wine bag as it ferments. And I thought, what if I forget to burp the toilet wine? But the truth is, I'm not going to get wine of any temperature in prison. Sheriff, oh. there are no fine wines in prison. You don't get to choose what you eat. You don't get to say what you do. You know, like like. How late can I read? When is lights out? But okay, but first Tom continues to be obsessed with prison. And then there was this like Tom-Greg interaction that I guess showed kind of like a power shift between the two. Like the, the, the sort of like driving theme here in this episode is that Greg starts the episode on Kendall's team, ends the episode on, on Logan's team. Is- he signs the JDA, which is the... He has been very confused all season about like who he wants to have as his lawyer and like whose team he wants to be on and whose side he's on. But literally, like he winds up in the end in like classic Greg mode doing the one thing which is just really spectacularly dumb, which is throwing all of his eggs into the Waystar Royco basket as though their interests are totally aligned when in fact their interests are almost exactly opposed. 
Right. I thought I thought he was going to ask for money, but he was just just wanted a job. Well, he, that's the whole point. Remember that, like, he was offered money by his grandfather in season two. He was offered that five million dollars to just quit Waystar Royco, and he realized that like money isn't wouldn't help him in a weird way. Like, what would he do then if he had? $5 million. He wants to feel like he's an important part of something bigger than himself. And so he's actually planned out this whole like future for himself as, you know, running some distant theme park in upstate New York or whatever. And he can see that like there's part of him that really just wants to be part of the family business and wants to be an important part of the family business. I mean, I think he's motivated just by being seen as a grown up. What did he say when he was meeting with? That was such a great scene with the rum and coke, and you knew he was gonna. You knew he was gonna cave. First of all, from the moment he, Logan is just too strong, he's like the he's a tractor beam, and you can't escape it. His children can't escape him. I love when he just yelled for the Coca Cola. Curry, can we bring uh, Greg some Coca Cola? No, it's fine. Really, um, no, 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 no. What Greg wants, <sighs> Greg must have. Thank you. <laughs> um, I feel like I feel like Kendall. This is Kendall's loss because Kendall didn't really give him anything to like believe in to be on his side. You know, like Kendall he, didn't he even, even buy him a watch. watch. He didn't even buy him the watch. Like he didn't <laughs> manipulate him properly. He could learn a lesson, and that's the other thing we really, really need to get into. But like Kendall loses Greg, Shiv gets everything she's tasked with doing. She does all the work. She gets she gets Greg to come over. She gets the Nazi to disparage the raisin and yet isn't in Logan's favor still for some reason, but she's clearly the more competent manipulator, you know? Sh- Shiv is very competent in this episode. And, and she, you know, the way she just completely steamrolls the Nazi after the Nazi has steamrolled Tom, it's just like it's very clear what the what the pecking order is at Waystar Royco. What's fascinating to me is that Shiv credits Tom with persuading Greg to sign the JDA. Like that's somehow a win for Tom rather than just for Logan. But even Tom doesn't really believe that he had anything to do with persuading Greg to do anything. He's like, oh, I guess you forgot it all, all worked out in that case. Can I wrestle you? That's right. The chicken wrestling. I mean, yeah, yeah. He, when he walked in there, it was already a done deal. I mean, Craig had figured it all out and Logan had convinced him. Why does Greg want to, why does Tom want to wrestle with Greg? Do you? I don't get theories? that at all. That was just, oh. the rip, remember it's riffing. You got to be, you got to be good at riffing. And riffing comes up later when, you know, at the, on the island, uh, when Kendall says, oh, just riffing. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I thought it was like, like just more evidence that Tom is just losing his mind and like looking for any kind of affection or relationship in all this. He feels like he can't have that with his wife anymore because she's like kind of his boss. Um, yeah, he's he feels emasculated really by suddenly her. again, like for the first time, I think in, in the show, Tom seems to be really upset at the idea that he's outranked by his wife. But do you see how fast she shut him down in that conversation where he's oh, whining about that? And, and, yeah. and she kind of plays along for a second. And then she says, you're doing it. And he's like, yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Maybe he's just got all of these. He's obsessed with with power dynamics because he's convinced that he's going to go to prison. And so he wants to be fighting Greg and he wants to be feared, of, you know, worried about being asked and all the rest of it. Like 
it's all just epiphenomenal worries about prison, really. I will note, just as a wardrobe note, that Roman started wearing a tie this episode. Oh, that is very important. I feel like this is Roman, like he's spending a bunch of time in the CEO's office and he's, you know, trying to dress for the party. He has a very swanky jacket with a very like shiny red lining and he's he's trying to take his new position seriously. Although I have to admit, I'm a little bit unclear now I say this, what his position is. Is he on payroll at Waystar Royco? Does he have a job? Well, he used to be the co the chief operating officer, him and he's Kendall still, were co-COOs yeah. together. Still, that he's hasn't still changed. there, maybe. I he's, think so. he's COO yeah. and, and, and Shiv is president. It's hard so. to know what any of them are really doing. You know, we've got <laughs> Roman and the Jerry thing. It's always entertaining. Yeah. Is Jerry getting tired of him a little bit in this episode? Or what's going on there with her date? She just, now that she's CEO, she's got to play it safer. I feel like, you know, there, there's an interesting exchange in there where um, Kendall says to Shiv, when they, in that first meeting of family members and lawyers and so forth, he says, well, that could be it for us. You know, the, the letter that Shiv wrote, that could be it for our relationship, he's basically saying. And she says, thanks, mom. And they immediately cut to Jerry trying to, like, get all the siblings to, you know, behave. And it's like, I, I think about it, it's like, Jerry's kind of the mom, she's kind of the den mother, and always has been. But she's also the sacrificial lamb, right? We should zoom back a little bit here, because you are, like, an actual expert on rich people, having read, <laughs> written the book on the subject. One of the things that I've been talking to a bunch of folks about with regard to this show is, like, to what degree is it realistic? Because they do spend a lot of time and effort, you know, getting consultants from various different fields to try and make sure that it is realistic in various ways. But when you see the sort of backstabbing and infighting within the Roy family, and obviously there are other examples in the real world, you you know, from Murdoch's to Redstone's to Rogers's to you name it, like how, but when you see this kind of jockeying for position um, among siblings who are all sort of second generation rich. How much does that sort of ring true to you? It really rings true to me. I mean, you know, you can't apply it to every family, obviously, but you hear these stories over and over with siblings suing each other, suing the trustees of their trust, um, bickering over this and that, bickering over inheritance, bickering over secession and power, and just, you know, who is loved? I mean, but if you notice in the credits, you never see the dad. You see the kids, you see the dad's back or him walking away or walking in the field or turning away from the kids. And that's a huge theme in this show. It's just, it's this Shakespearean, like, children's need for their parents' love and not quite getting it. And you see that, especially in these sort of, you know, billionaire families, you know, the parents aren't present. A guy like Logan Roy had to work so hard to build that company. He was never around. Those kids, although we don't hear direct references to it, they were raised by nannies and various household staff. And the seeing the dad was probably a special occasion for them. I mean, you even see it with, you know, with Roman. <laughs> I've got to say one of my favorite lines in this episode was, Jess, the rabbit cam. <laughs> 
And she runs over in her high heels with the iPad so she can show, you know, the rabbits to the children. And it's just it's just so telling, these little details. Yeah, Kendall's the only one Kendall's the only one with, with kids, right? And he's treating his own kids just as distantly as he was treated himself. I was gonna ask Mike if you can if you can think of a like a real life billionaire neglectful dad example from your brain. Well, in, in, in my book there was a um there's a woman named Tracy Gary who grew up in a home a big telecom family. You know, they had hundreds of millions of dollars, but it wasn't, they weren't billionaires, but they had private jets, they had helicopters, they had like seven states all around the country. And she told me, I think I had dinner with my parents about five times in my entire childhood, like with the family. They were always traveling. They were gone six months of the year. She was raised by a bunch of staff people who, you know, had third grade educations. And as a, she told me, as a result, as a kid, she barely talked to people. She became like preternaturally shy because she just had no, there were no children in, in her orbit. And even the family would go, they had, they had one of these islands where only extremely wealthy people lived. You couldn't even go there unless you were a friend of one of, you know, Florida's like Fisher Island, that kind of place. Um, you know, there were like 40 houses on the island and it was only like super wealthy people. And, um, there, you know, there's no kids. And she was chauffeured to a private school. I mean, all this stuff. And she was incredibly lonely and miserable. Five um, meals with her father. That's yeah. incredible. I've had and, like you know, three meals a day during the pandemic with my kids. I mean, like, there, were, there, were things that, <laughs> there were things that she appreciated about her, things that her parents did teach her about, you know, business and money and so forth. But um, ultimately, she became estranged from them. I mean, you see that, is it Naomi Pierce? You know, she's trying to pull away from the family. She's trying to reject that orbit. And it's really hard to do because you're dependent upon it. I mean, that's that's really, you know, this woman, Tracy Gary, actually did estrange herself. She basically gave away that inheritance and kind of rejected the family wealth. And now she goes around preaching, like, how people should be given away their money. Oh, my God. This is this is the the, the theme that runs through slate money goes to the movies or other little mini season which is which is the classic hollywood trope of in order to become pure you need to give away all of the ill-gotten money you can't keep the money and also be true to yourself but this idea of jogging for succession you had a you had a whole thing from andrew carnegie was it about how like you just don't ever want to give your kids anything yeah, Carnegie actually he was it, he has some parallels with Logan Roy. They're both Scottish. They both grew up poor and became unbelievably rich. Okay, so I wanted to read just a little snippet from an essay by Carnegie. It was called The Advantages of Poverty of all things, and it's uh, written in, he wrote it he published it in 1891. He wrote, "The banker who hands over his business to sons because it's always sons in that era because they are sons is guilty of a great offense." The transmission of wealth and rank without regard to merit or quality may pass from one peer to another without serious injury, but the management of business never. There are exceptions where the son shows taste and decided ability, which render him the natural successor, but those are rare, far too rare to take into account in estimating the value of a custom. This ability, moreover, should be proved in some other establishment than that of the father. Yeah, Shiv is really the only one who's gone off on her own to do anything in this family. 
it, it, it strikes me that Rupert, Rupert Murdoch is is the exception to the rule, right? He he inherited the publishing company from his father and made it much bigger and much more successful, made it international. Um, but it's rare to think of many other people like that. I had this conversation this week with um, a consultant whose firm just consults family businesses, and he gave me the spiel, which I was sort of convinced by, but I can be easily swayed, to be honest, but that most businesses in the world are, in fact, family businesses. It's like 40% or something. So it's actually quite common to be a family business, and they can last for quite a long time. He pointed out some like Italian wineries like founded oh, in the italian wineries the, the japanese soy sauce makers <laughs> yeah I, I can tell there's you lots that of my, family businesses that do fine oh, and stick around my, i had an absolutely lovely summer holiday this year in at the at the um hotel traubert honbach in Bayersbronn in germany which has been run by the fink family for 350 years so yeah it it totally it's totally a thing what happens is that when you start getting aggressive and wanting to expand aggressively and grow, like most of those family businesses, they're a family business. It's a vineyard. It's a forest. It's a hotel, it, you know, and it just supports the family and it supports itself and it's fine. What happens, especially in the 20th century, is this idea that everyone starts going to business school and starts looking for growth. And then they wind up like listing shares on the stock market and then the shareholders want growth and growth is the thing which really causes um you know or the reaching for growth causes the companies to overextend and the families to lose control um I, and if you listen to the you know salmon family episode of slate money you'll know that you know i'm speaking from personal family experience here you you can see this absolutely in in Waystar Royco, it's in the name. It's a, it's the product of a merger between Royco, which is Logan's company, and Waystar, which is the satellite company. And all of this merging has diluted his control, and it means he no longer controls the company, and he's now at the mercy of people like Josh Aronson, who can, you know, humiliate him on their private island and then walk off with the rivals. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
there was that hilarious part of the episode where Kendall and Logan take identical separate helicopters and then identical separate jets to meet Aronson. Is this normal? Like, I understand they're both coming from sort of downtown, I guess. But the idea that instead of just driving to your private jet at Teterboro, you would drive to the Wall Street heliport and then take a helicopter to Teterboro. I'm like, wow, that's like that's a level of extra that I hadn't even imagined that people would do. I mean, the whole island thing from getting there to everything that happened there was just a series of tiny power plays. I mean, even like, do you remember when um, Kendall was talking about the Beatles? He said, he said, oh, the Beatles, you know, put out their best music when they were getting sued. And uh, well, Josh says good band. And Kendall goes, great band. And then Logan goes, good band. Good band. <laughs> I mean, he just has to rub in his dominance at every moment. I thought that was so funny. And then, but just going there, it's like, okay, I'm going to take the lead helicopter. I'm ho- he held up Kendall. He was going to take the lead. He's trying to show him dominance. It's just everything was a game. But they were dominated by Josh Aronson, who made them go out to his private island because his daughter was sick, but then his daughter was not sick. And the whole thing was obviously just a way for Josh Aronson to manipulate those guys. And what does he say? King Kong is dancing for me. I can't believe it. It was was this extraordinary and very gratuitous power play on the part of Aronson, who almost certainly knew all along what he wanted. Well, I'm I'm unclear on whether the whole point was to literally physically destroy Logan Roy and to get him to collapse on, you know, whether it was a, a physical test of Logan, which is why he kept on insisting that he walk everywhere, um, or whether that was like an unanticipated side effect of his power play. It's, it's also, you know, so were you convinced that Josh knew what the end game was the whole time, or do you think he was actually uh, he was actually convinced by Logan's collapse? I, I I don't think he had he quite knew that end game. I think that that moment where he says to Kendall, like, just let the the DOJ sort it out. Like you said your thing. Like just go back. I think he he would have maybe wanted that out outcome. Yeah, I think he that if if Kendall had been open to that, then maybe the outcome would have been different. Although a lot of things didn't really make sense to me, like the whole conceit that Kendall would pretend to be aligned with his father for the purposes of a meeting with Josh Aronson just to prevent the takeover by Sandy and Stewie. I'm like, wait, no, isn't the takeover by Sandy and Stewie exactly like the other side that Kendall is now aligned with? Like, why what, Why is this suddenly something he doesn't want? That one didn't entirely make... Uh, maybe has, although maybe it's just a sign of how sort of confused Kendall is in his own mind about what he's trying to achieve. Like, he kind of wants to bring Logan down, but he kind of doesn't want the family to lose control, and he doesn't quite know what he's doing, and he's not really listening to any of his expensive legal advice... And he's basically just not competent at his the job that he's given himself. He's not a killer. He's definitely not a killer. That's right. <laughs> it's not clear to me what's going on with Sandy and Stewie because while all this is going on on the private island, back at headquarters, Carl and Frank are like working on something with Sandy and Stewie, trying to 
get with them. There's some kind of strategy there too. Jerry later says like it's not working. Shiv is trying to get involved. Shiv is trying to hurry things up. But there's definitely back-channel negotiations between the company and, and Sandy and Stewie where they're effectively trying to get Sandy and Stewie to... I'm going to say withdraw their proposal for the annual meeting and the proxy vote so that it doesn't come to a vote and so that Logan manages to stay in control. But I can't imagine what would mollify Sandy. He's clear that like, even if he gets board seats, Logan's going to ignore those board members. And he, and he, and he hates Logan's guts. But I was thinking everyone hates Kendall so much that it would drive <laughs> Sandy and Stewie back to Logan somehow just to like ice out Kendall. Cause no one like, he's just, he, at, by the end of this episode, he's odd man out. He has no allies anymore. The Stewie Kendall relationship is a fascinating one, you know, because Stewie has been seeing through Kendall for, you know, the entire show basically, but doesn't hate Kendall. I think he just doesn't take him remotely seriously as a, competent player and just is, is sort of laughing at him really stewie doesn't take kendall remotely seriously right well no one does really except for you know kendall no i mean stewie took kendall seriously enough to bring him in with sandy and like they were going to do a whole a whole thing they were right because he needed, he needed kendall's votes <laughs> right that was the thing right but they were they were gaming remember they were gaming him because he didn't know sandy was involved at first and then in the nightclub there's sandy right that's one one of my other favorite lines in this episode was at the beginning when Kendall gets a phone call and like as you always do when you get a phone call you then announce to the entire room quote guys I'm gonna need the command pod can you clear the room <laughs> like, just take the phone call honestly there's you're gonna walk out onto the balcony anyway don't no need to be so dramatic about it I want to get back to the moment on the island where Logan professes that he loves his son It'll be okay, because he's a good kid. He's a good kid? Yeah, he's a good kid. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, he did what he thought was best. I think he went too far, but he's a good kid. Yeah? He's a good kid, and I love him. I mean... There'll be a big number. We'll pay. He'll mew and cry, and you know, I'll get it. It'll all be okay. And maybe it'll be him one day. It's in his blood. He learned it all from me. And maybe, maybe he's the best one of all of them. Do you think that Kendall wavers ever so slightly? I think he bought that completely like he softened his face softened and then he he circled back to it after he made the speech and that's when logan says like i'd sooner give it to a racial slur in the shower block than see you have it it was was so brutal i mean it was such a such a brutal you know going back on what he had just said because what he said is exactly what kendall wanted to hear like exactly and he knows it he's such a master manipulator I mean, he does love him but he uses that love to control him. Like when Logan's like about to collapse, Kendall is actually concerned about him. Like he loves him. You know, it's his dad who's about to die there out there, even though he didn't give him that 
Evian bottle in time, as Roman later points out. You tried um, to assassinate our father with the son. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it was. I think it was a um, a really well acted, really really well acted scene because you could the connection was there, but the estrangement was there, and it was super awkward. And they're trading barbs. It was that was great. I mean, I think Jeremy's strong. I mean, Jeremy Strong is so good at having his face just crumble when he's face to face with Logan. He's super, you know, he's this coked up, like, uh, you know, jiving around, riffing self and making jokes. And, you know, he's confident. And then he gets face to face with with uh, Logan and everything changes. And he's just this mask of shame and guilt and all the baggage. He just cannot face his father. So let's compare to Shiv in this episode because, and we talked about this already a little bit, like Shiv gets these like jobs from dad at the beginning, um, you know, watch Carl, get the the Nazi on, on team anti-raisin and get Greg, you know, on our side. Yeah, she's halfway through doing it. And then I guess Carl complains about her to Logan and Logan just like absolutely like shits on Shiv, basically, and he says things are always moving. Carl's not happy with your level of input. Oh, okay. Well, fuck him, right? I don't need another toothache. Well, you okayed me to go in there and kick some ass, and I barely... I gave you a destination. I can't walk you there, okay? Okay, Dad, but if you give in to Carl, then everyone starts to carve me out. There's a line. Nothing is a line. Everything, everywhere, is always moving, forever. Get used to it. Okay. Which is genuinely good business advice, but also (laughs) incredibly, like, just cutting her off at the knees at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand. Like, she's competent. Like, why, why is Logan not supporting her and supporting Carl, who episode after episode has not impressed me as a viewer. Like I don't get (laughs) the whole Carl thing at all. Like why is he like cutting her out? So he's like totally like diminishing her. But unlike Kendall, Shiv doesn't like turn to drugs or try to undermine her dad. She just like keeps going and like trying her best. I very much related to that because if someone tells me like I'm not doing a good enough job, I will like do a better job like a normal person, not cocaine. So what's going on? There, you know, there's really some commentary here on on what women do face in high level working world is just not getting undermined all the time and having to behave differently than the men in order to get what they need. You know, I mean, when she walked in with Carl and Frank, God, that was an uncomfortable scene. Well, I think I think a lot of it is just the way the 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 awkward relationship that the professionals, Carl, Frank, Jerry, Hugo, like everyone who isn't in the family have with Roman, Kendall, and Shiv, right? Which is that they don't take them seriously as competent professionals because they're really not. They didn't work their way up in any kind of meritocratic way. They're they're, there only by dint of their membership in the Lucky Sperm Club. And yet at the same time, they know they have to kind of pay lip service to it. And this being succession, they're never exactly subtle about the fact that they're sort of like only paying attention to these pipsqueaks because they have to that's being a relative constant um none of them have ever actually listened to the ideas beyond maybe um 
Jerry, you know, when, when Roman says, like, why don't you set up an executive committee? And Jerry's like, well, uh, there could be, like, some PR value in that. But generally, they don't listen to the kids at all. And so if Logan is going to give Siobhan the job of being listened to, then he knows that the first thing they're going to do is to, like, come crying to Logan and say, why are you making me listen to your daughter? And then it's up to Logan, really, to say, well, you have to listen to her or else to not say that. And clearly he decided to not say that. He doesn't really want Siobhan running anything. He just wants her close to him. And this does not deter her, though. She still keeps doing what she's doing, which is sort of interesting. Yeah, you got to give it to her. I mean, she she keeps going. I want to go back to this whole um, Kendall-Greg relationship because it really comes, I think, into quite sharp focus in the conversation that Josh has with Kendall. And Josh basically says, look, what have you got on Logan? If you have nothing on him, he goes, if you've got jack shit, you look like a fake. If you have really damaging shit, you make me want to run away, right? He's like, what have you got? And Kendall has no answer to this. But what we know, you know, with full dramatic irony here, what we know is that what Kendall has on Logan is literally just what Greg pulled out of his underpants, right? That's, <laughs> that, that's like the only thing, the only thing that Kendall has that like the rest of the world doesn't already know is like a few pieces of paper that were A, sh- saved from shredding and B, saved from the fire on like, you know, the balcony with Tom. And it's hard to believe that these few pieces of paper on their own are going to move the needle very far, and even harder to believe that they're going to directly implicate Logan. But we do know that Greg, as a sort of cooperative witness, could be extremely valuable to Kendall, right? Because Greg was right in there with Tom, taking the orders, shredding the documents. And so Kendall really needs... Greg much more than he needs Greg's pieces of paper. And the way in which Kendall just allowed Greg to slip his grasp, you know, he's the anti-Siobhan, right? Like, Siobhan is super competent and does what she does her job. Kendall is is just like, you know, his ace in the hole, who's Greg, who's Greg, he, he just loses. It's like, what? He didn't even send him a basket of croissant, you know? No croissants, or, or donuts. no watches, no pastries, no donuts. no donuts. He does nothing for Greg. It does seem that Kendall's play has come to an end by the end of this episode four. I mean, I guess the DOJ has a bunch of documents now also, but I feel like he's lost momentum. He's lost all his allies. He never was able to get his siblings on his side. All he has left is like this big bunny in a cage. I wrote in really big <laughs> letters on my, do- on, my, on my notes, is the bunny a metaphor? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You know, one thing I was thinking about, remember when Josh talks about, I got a gun to your head. And I think about all the things that everybody has on everybody else. Most of them are things that are going to reflect badly on, A, the, the whole family and the person who has the the bad thing. Like, so Craig's got those documents that's going to reflect badly on him because he was involved in the cover-up. Um, we've got the... Uh, tattoo the, guy. The tattoo guy. And Roman is already to give himself up, right? And so, like, yeah, oh, yeah, we like, can take him down. Don't, don't release the photo because it's going to react. It's going to look bad on on Roman, who is like persuading the 
guy to get tattooed at least as much as Kendall was. But as but Roman and Shiv understand, right? They, as Shiv says to to the Nazis, he's like, "Yeah, we don't get embarrassed." And and Roman's whole idea is, "I don't get embarrassed. I'm a Roy." And Wocahontas Kendall is going to get you know embarrassed. Do you remember that South by Southwest where like some some tech company decided that what they were going to do was pay all of the homeless people in Austin to be mobile hotspots? Yes. Oh my oh god. Oh my yes. god. Yes. Well, it reminds me of it during the first dot com boom in San Francisco. It was, everyone's trying to do guerrilla marketing, and they would spray paint logos on the sidewalk and. One, there was some sort of, sort of Linux thing that IBM was about. So IBM is spray painting the sidewalks of San Francisco, like basically vandalizing, and then the city like sued them. <laughs> it was, it's just hilarious. There's this, this yearning for authenticity. And that's actually a theme that comes up in my book, Jackpot, and also in the show a lot. It's like a guy like Connor, you know, they are, they've never ha- had any feeling like they've done anything themselves. And they're dying to do something that feels authentic and they're living these sort of shell lives um it it kind of comes up when roman says talking about the tattoo guy he says oh we're doing an ironic club crawl it's like why ironic it's like because you can't do anything unironically right right i think that's exactly right that that when um for tom's bachelor party um Tom is taking it incredibly seriously. And it's like, this is what like rich people do. And everyone else is kind of there ironically. And Connor's like vaguely conscious of it, right? You know, when when his sister offers, offers him like, maybe you could do a wine tasting show. And he's like, I'm running for president. I'm not going <laughs> to do a wine tasting show. Um, none of them have any conception of how to be a real person. Like Roman came back from his management training and he's like, I've, you know, I've come back from real America, but he obviously hadn't and he had learned nothing. Well, he do, I don't think they think humans are are real. I mean, the the sight of Roman and and Hugo like tapping on the guy's forehead to try and find <laughs> the scars that was so dehumanizing and terrible. Right. And it, I mean, I think in the first season of the show, Roman like pays a tells a boy he'll give him a million dollars or something if he hits a home run at like the family softball game. And it, it's very similar. Like they just play they play with each other kind of ruthlessly. Um, and then when they go and play with with normals they they strip them of all humanity and and treat them like 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 toys like how my cats play with a little toy mouse or something that's how these people treat other humans yeah they have no empathy whatsoever and then tom tries to replicate that right by with the human furniture and that kind of stuff but like yes he, oh, he, he never gets it right no no poor tom but even tom is like constant harassment of craig it's sort of in this it falls into the same pot yes he's trying to have a like a toy with greg and and the the, the sad part in this episode is that like greg is not his toy anymore because he found his own kind of like levers to power (laughs) (laughs) logan's like yeah yeah you have a little bit of leverage here now i'm not going to tell you how much you can get and then he winds up asking i mean it's in so it's so greg like you know can i can i be like number five in parks you know it's all he wants this is greatest ambition in life yeah just a middle management position (laughs) hello i'm imi harper on the slow newscast from tortoise i tell the story of how a hong kong billionaire was silenced 
I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Favorite lines. Mike, you, you had too many to count. Yeah, I, 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 and I've actually named some of them. So a, a couple, like one is, I just love the raisin business. And I love it when <laughs> Logan says, the raisin owes me everything. <laughs> I mean, every time, every time I hear them talk about the raisin, I laugh. It's just so funny. But another one, this is like, it's not, not so much that it's funny. It's just very telling. And it's the line that Connor uses when he comes in and he's asking for a position so he can run for president again. He says... I want to be a good boy, but I, I think I need me a little pie here. It's sort of one of those understated lines, but that's like his, that's his character in a nutshell. That's what he is. He's the good boy who just wants a little pie. Which reminds me of Roman when he hands over the photo of the bum with the tattoo and he talks about his dad. He goes, he's going to love it. Dad's going to give me my bedtime bath. <laughs> <laughs> well, that same scene, he goes, he, ta- he calls Kendall Bocahontas and he goes, using the poor's forehead as a post-it, it's fucking killer. <laughs> Terrible. Um, Emily? Yeah, I mean, probably. Hey, I hear you tried to kill dad again. It was just heat exhaustion. Uh, that's not what we're hearing. We're hearing you took an old man out to die in the sun. We went for a hike with Josh. You tried to assassinate our dad with the sun. Do you have a fetish for nearly killing dad? Like, just the tip, but for like killing dad. <laughs> I really enjoyed all of that. And there the was end such was a good day, sir. <laughs> there was such good writing. The writing in this episode was just phenomenal. Yeah, this was like maybe my favorite. Yeah, I gotta watch them all twice season. so I can get all those. You should. Because- you should watch. I mean, this is my one my one piece of advice for anyone watching Succession, especially Succession season three, is to watch them twice because the line readings are much more subtle in this season you kind of need to watch it a second time to realize what they're saying a lot of the time and just how good the lines are although the one at the beginning which i have to which we haven't mentioned which i have to talk about was obvious the first time round when greg's talking to kendall and talking about getting summoned over to logan's and he's worried about what he's going to meet when he goes there and he's worried about quote goons and stooges and roughjacks there to administer a beating <laughs> <Yeah>. roughjacks <laughs> 
He also says, I'm a sturdy birdie. <laughs> so Craig. Oh my God. Yeah, like, exactly. He's, yeah, he goes to Kendall and says, I'm a sturdy birdie. And of course he proves to be not a sturdy birdie at all, which raises the interesting question of when, when he says that, when he describes himself as being a sturdy birdie on Team Kendall, like, does he believe it at the time? And then eventually he switches? Or when he says that, does he kind of know already that he's going to wind up under, you know, Team Logan? I don't know. He must know, he right? He is not a loyal guy. Like, we we know this. Like, for the past, this episode and the previous three, he's been kind of, like, trying to figure out, like, whose lawyer do I use? Like, what side am I on? I, I feel like it hasn't been totally, he hasn't been totally loyal. And he knows he's not loyal when he claims to be a sturdy birdie. And everybody caves to Logan, mostly. Except for Josh Aronson. That's right. Although we'll see. Josh Aronson has now come out somehow, used his back channels to to tell Roman and the rest of the Grant gang that he's going to vote his 4% with Sandy and Stewie, or whatever it was that the message was. But, you know, that hasn't happened yet. The, the, the big annual meeting hasn't happened yet. It's been just about to happen for one and a half seasons now. It's about time that it comes up. This, I, I've actually kind the of slowest moving TV series of all time. I know. I've kind of lost context of what even happens if Sandy and Stewie get control. I mean, so it goes out of the Roy. And is, is that such a tragedy? So, yeah. So, what would happen is what happened to the Murdochs when they sold 21st Century Fox to Disney, right? They just got lots of money and no more companies run. I mean, they kept a a rump company, you know, they still have Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. But yeah, they they basically just said, we can't really compete on the global stage anymore. We're going to have to let Disney take over from us. Well, that's what I call a jackpot moment in my book, like a huge liquidity event, right? And that causes all kinds of problems in a family. It just Why? becomes a huge... It's because it becomes a huge cesspool of people just, so, you know, the the family trusts and the lawyers and the bickering over like, who gets what assets and the vacation home. You know, what's interesting is that doesn't come up a whole lot yet in this series. They're so loaded that none of them are ever consciously thinking about their wealth. It's just there. I mean, that's an interesting thing about this show. How common is that? Like, how rich do you need to be to be just completely unworried about money and it just being a thing that you have all been swimming in your entire life? Well, it's interesting because most wealthy people, if you ask them how much do you need to be financially secure, they'll tell you like a third more than they have. Right. But, but, but not, but not the Roy's, right? Yeah. The Roy's are so, you know, when you, when you get to that insane level of wealth, it's all about the game, the game of it. Right. I mean, what, what motivates Logan Roy? Is he a happy man? You know, he's, he just wants to win. Seems to me. Like that, that's all he has left is to hold this company into, you know, his power is, you know, be able to call the raisin. For inheritors, too, in particular, it's more, especially at that level, it's more about just, again, doing something you feel is authentic, as opposed to just being the sucking off the teeth. Exactly. Or like Sherry Redstone. You know, she she's like, she needs to prove that she can run this company. It's not enough to just be stupendously wealthy. And so, and you're saying that the fact that they always want a third more money, like these people typically feel like they don't have enough money or do they feel like Felix was kind of getting at, like, they don't even think about it. They just always have the money. 
Well, I guess it depends on the level we're talking about. I mean, I guess I guess I'm not talking about most billionaires at that level. You know, it's so clear that you'll never spend that money in your lifetime. But more people who are climbing up into the you know hundreds of millions. I mean, there's actually been some. There, there was a big study I talk about in my book where that's what they got out of it. Okay. Thank you for ratifying my my theory, which I've had for some years now, that the amount of money you need to be a billionaire is $250 million. And that, that this is actually a good sort of definition, definitional like point that billionaire is not about like counting the net worth and seeing if you get to a billion. Billionaire is the point at which you absolutely stop ever worrying about, will I ever have enough money? Yeah, you don't. And that, you and that happens at about two hundred fifty million, or less even. But it doesn't mean you don't stop thinking and obsessing about money. It means you don't worry that you're going to lose it all, but it becomes a constant presence in your life. It just sits on your shoulder all the time, whispering to you, "and and how am I doing? How how are those how are those you know investments doing? How is this doing? I mean, very few people with that kind of wealth can walk around carefree. They don't, you know." It, it sucks up a lot of their mental energy and space and time. In a lot of cases, it makes them miserable, which is, no, they, they've got so many, they, they end up with so many moving parts that they have, it becomes their whole life and identity and they become miserable and then they have to hire a whole entourage of people to take care of all these things for them so they can have a little bit of mental space, which is you notice everybody in succession, they're always surrounded by minions who are doing all the things, all the PR, all the... You know, people just come up to them, report, go away. And I mean, even Josh Aronson, right? Who's also at that billionaire level, private island. You know, he, he takes a walk, walk to the beach and then magically out of nowhere, what appears at the beach, but like a table and servant serving food. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, minions, minions as far as the eye can see. But then he still gets lost going back. They got lost, right? That's what happened. They was that real or not? Was it? Was that? Was that something he did on purpose, or was that him just? Yeah, and like, and the whole and Emily, we need to, we we've, you know, we need to carve out a tiny little bit of space here for you to do your monologue on what the fuck was Josh Aronson wearing? Why was he wearing <laughs> so many shirts? He was wearing okay. He was wearing the orange vest. He had on like. Uh, okay, he had a gray T-shirt. He had an orange vest, a sweatshirt, and a black scarf. Also, why did he have so much on? I, I said to Felix over a text, I was like almost Steve Bannon like in the number of shirts this man was wearing. But like, <laughs> if Steve Bannon were Jewish and lived in Brooklyn or something, but like, it was the same vibe to me. It was like he had on all these all these clothes, and then. And then Kendall and Logan, they just had like their like little jackets on, but they looked cold. You know, they were like zipped up all the way. So they were kind of casual, but not as casual as Josh. And then when Stewie appears at the, at the, on the tarmac or whatever, he's wearing like a full like business wear kind of look. And it's just interesting to think about what you get to wear and um, in terms of power. Well, maybe, yeah, that'll, maybe that's part of the power play. I get to dress casually. You have to approach me with respect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. Mike, thank you for coming on the show. It's so been welcome. illuminating and brilliant. And yeah, we will all run out and buy your book. Remind us what it's called. It's called Jackpot. It has a very sparkly cover, so you can you won't miss it on the shelves if you're a local independent bookstore. You can get it anywhere you want. So find Mike's book, and then we will be back next week with a recap of episode five. And 
welcoming back Mr. Ed Lee of the New York Times who knows more about (gasps) media than anyone else alive. That's coming up next week on Sleep Money Succession. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.